A ground offensive looks likely soon as Israeli forces prepare for the next stage of war. A military spokesman said they were ready to begin the next maneuver. Humanitarian aid is currently in Egypt, is ready to go into Gaza. Find out what's delaying the delivery and why Israel might be against such aid. Representative Jim Jordan pushing ahead with a third round of speaker voting despite opposition from Republican holdouts. What are his odds of winning the gavel? President Biden wants a single aid package which includes both Israel and Ukraine. We bring you what lawmakers say about Biden's proposal. New body cam footage of the man who crashed his car into a Chinese consulate earlier this month. The footage shows, sheds new light on the incident. Transforming a time of bleakness into a chance to brighten someone's day. A New York woman shares how she made the most of the pandemic to build up her friends, family, and even strangers. Hello and welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Chris Beers. And I'm Stephanie Cox. We have insights and perspectives on the stories shaping our world. Breaking news, in-depth analysis, and inspiration to power your day. Now for our top stories. The United Nations says aid trucks must move to Gaza as quickly as possible. The Secretary General referred to trucks currently in Egypt ready to move across the border into Gaza. We have seen so many trucks loaded with water, with fuel, with medicines, with uh, food. Exactly the same things that are needed on this side of the wall. New reports on Friday morning now say aid might be able to move into Gaza. Egypt reportedly removed concrete blocks at the border this morning, indicating trucks might enter. Also today, UN said it's in advanced talks with all parties in the conflict. That's to ensure an aid operation can soon be conducted in Gaza. Egypt has theoretically agreed to reopen its border crossing with Gaza to allow aid to reach Palestinians, but details of the agreement are still being worked out. Meanwhile, Israel says it's still determining whether to allow aid into Gaza or not. The issue Israel might have with allowing aid into Gaza is that there's a high chance Hamas will steal it. Hamas uses various things to advance its own interests, even water pipes, for example, to build rockets. The Israeli army says it's preparing for the next phase of the war. This followed Israel's defense minister's order that ground forces be prepared to see Gaza, quote, from the inside. His remarks hinted at a ground offensive to destroy Hamas nearly two weeks after its bloody terrorist attacks. The army continues to prepare for the next stage of the war, the maneuver. The forces are in the field training, organizing, studying, researching, studying everything that has happened in the fighting so far and the lessons they must learn. Beyond that, we constantly continue the logistical effort in order to arrive as best as possible to enter the maneuver. The Israeli defense minister outlined three planned phases of the war against Hamas. He said the troops are currently in the first phase. During this stage, Israel is conducting military operations through airstrikes and ground maneuvers. The second stage would be to, quote, eliminate pockets of resistance after defeating Hamas. 
The third is to create a new security regime in the Gaza Strip that would remove Israel's responsibility for daily life in the region. There's no formal timetable for ground operations. Meanwhile, Israeli forces tightened security and erected barriers in the streets of East Jerusalem ahead of Muslim residents' Friday prayers. Worshippers are expected to gather today at Jerusalem's Al-Aqsa Mosque. A third round of voting is underway to determine whether Representative Jim Jordan can earn speakership when the House remains divided. Jordan spoke about the important work that needs to be done during a press conference this morning. Here's a look. Americans expect their government to fight for them. They expect us to finish our work and they expect us to keep faith with the principles and values that made us the greatest nation ever. Made us the nation that could go from the Wright brothers to Neil Armstrong. That's what we have to keep in mind. And that's the kind of attitude I think we got to have. The quickest way to get all this working is to get a speaker elected. That's what I hope we can do today. They see a war in Israel, our strongest ally, Israel, and what's happening there, and the help that Israel needs. And they see a government that's been weaponized against we, the people. The very government that's supposed to serve us has been turned on the taxpayers who pay for it. I think the American people are thirsty for change. I think they are hungry for leadership. And frankly, they know that the White House can't provide it. They know the Senate won't lead. And they are looking for House Republicans to step up and lead and make change on these important issues. Jordan failed twice earlier this week to win the 217 votes needed for the speaker's gavel. He met yesterday with some of 22 Republicans who have voted against him. He's made a little headway with the 22 Republicans who voted against him, some of whom say they have received death threats. Republicans also vetoed a backup plan that would empower temporary Speaker Patrick McHenry. The House vote started this morning at 10 a.m. Eastern. We'll keep you updated later about our sh in our show. President Biden gave his second Oval Office address since taking office. He made the case for deeper U.S. involvement in the conflict in the Middle East and Ukraine. The president said he would send an urgent funding request to Congress, which is expected to be roughly $100 billion over the next year. Biden hopes that by combining all of these issues into one piece of legislation, he will help it win congressional approval. Although Senate Republicans have asked him not to combine them, here's a recap of Biden's address. I know these conflicts can seem far away. And it's natural to ask, why does this matter to America? So let me share with you why making sure Israel and Ukraine succeed is vital for America's national security. You know, history has taught us that when terrorists don't pay a price for their terror, when dictators don't pay a price for their aggression, they cause more chaos and death and more destruction. American leadership is what holds the world together. American alliances are what keep us, America, safe. American values are what make us a partner that other nations want to work with. Put all that at risk if we walk away from Ukraine, if we turn our backs on Israel, it's just not worth it. That's why tomorrow I'm going to send to Congress an urgent budget request to fund America's national security needs, to support our critical partners, including Israel and Ukraine. It's a smart investment that's going to pay dividends for American security for generations. Help us keep American troops out of harm's way. Help us build a world that is safer, more peaceful, more prosperous for our children and grandchildren. 
Lawmakers are now reacting to President Biden's address to the nation. Here are some of those reactions. Our president has been just so strong. Uh, he just understands so well the relationship between the United States and Israel as our values partner, as our strategic partner. I think that he has handled all this magnificently, as he did with Ukraine. He has been a great uh, a global leader. I was frustrated by this speech. S terrorists bombed our ally, Israel. And we heard more about Ukraine than we did our ally, Israel. And the package itself has more money for Ukraine than it does for Israel. I, I think we would be better off having a single focus on Israel. Biden's package would reportedly give around $60 billion to Ukraine. Another $14 billion would go to Israel. Meanwhile, Ohio Republican J.D. Vance also commented on the proposed package, saying Biden is, quote, using dead children in Israel to sell his disastrous Ukraine policy to skeptical Americans. They are not the same countries, he says. They are not the same problems. Biden's aid package would also allocate money for humanitarian aid, U.S. efforts in the Indo-Pacific and the southern border. In total, it would come to around $100 billion. An update, the White House has already asked Congress for nearly $106 billion to fund plans for Ukraine, Israel and U.S. border security. Biden's budget director made the request in a letter today to acting House Speaker Patrick McHenry, urging Congress to address it as part of a bipartisan agreement in the weeks ahead. Now let's hear from Colonel Darren Gobb about the significance of the president's aid request and last night's address. Lieutenant Colonel Darren Gobb, thank you for joining us again. President Biden last night addressed the nation from the Oval Office, attempting to unify Americans around support for Israel and Ukraine um, in their respective wars. He said making sure these nations succeed is vital for U.S. national security interests. What are the U.S. national security implications of these two wars? Chris, I think that's really probably the big question out there right now is what's the strategy? What's the plan? Those of us who've been involved in developing these kinds of things with the Department of Defense, Department of State, or various other entities are looking to see that presented to the American people clearly. What's our objective? It's really hard to tell. There's, there's like the speech last night really was more an emotional appeal than anything else, but not a whole lot of why. And I realize he's using this idea about, you know, Putin could expand the conflict if he wins in Ukraine. And Israel's an ally and always has been. Tying the two conflicts together, I don't think, was a, a good comparison. So uh, I think we're left with hat in hand going, you know, what are we doing? And, Colonel, let's look at this. The Iran-backed Houthi group in Yemen fired missiles and drones northward, potentially towards Israel, before they were brought down by the U.S. Navy. What do we know about these missiles and drones and the likelihood they were heading for Israel? Well, Chris, I think it's fairly obvious, given what we've seen from their trajectory, that uh, it was intended to be something to do with Israel. Uh, it's hard to say for certain at this point without talking to those who were um, launching them in the first place. However, I think one of the questions that we should be asking ourselves is, how do Houthi rebels in Yemen end up with these kinds of drones and cruise missiles? Uh, that just kind of indicates to you that uh, 
Iran is clearly behind these things in both funding and training and is willing to use proxy forces across the region to do their bidding while trying to pretend like their hands are clean. And what's the significance of this move by the uh, Houthis amid the Israel-Hamas war? You sort of touched on this, but... Yeah, I think that when we look at that, it's, one, it's, again, Iran influence. So they're looking at their different types of proxy armies, Hamas, Hezbollah, the Houthi rebels in Yemen, and others, and ensuring that they give inflict maximum damage or public relations damage as well with regards to Israel and Hamas, specifically uh, that specific war right now. But uh, it is also indica indicative of the expanding nature of this conflict, even though it, it, sometimes it moves forward quickly and sometimes it's a little bit slower. But as you see each day, someone else seems to get involved. And I don't know if this is going to continue from Yemen or if that was a one a one shot thing. But uh, we need to be concerned about this conflict growing either by accident or by intention. And to your point, the U.S. was the one who shot down these missiles and drones. What does it mean that the U.S. is involved in this event in a kinetic way? Well, first of all, the, this was, you know, just we assume where they're going. And, and I don't know the decision exactly that happened on on these ships, of course, but there was a possibility of them looking at this like you know, they could have been launched at the American fleet. So it's always their right of self-defense in, in action, too. So that, that is a possibility. But as we expand our, our footprint in the region with carrier groups and, and other assets, the chances of other nations trying to attack our resources increases in the odds of an accident of some nature also increase. So we have to be very careful to make sure that we are not the cause of expanding this conflict. Lieutenant Colonel Darren Gobb, thank you again. And following President Biden's address to the nation last night, we wanted to hear how Israelis are responding. We spoke with Dove Hickand, a former New York assemblyman and the founder of Americans Against Antisemitism for his thoughts. Dove Hickand, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for coming on. To begin with, I'd like to look at President Biden's address last night. What did you think of the tone of his message and the content of his message? Well, I think all of Biden's comments, being in Israel, the speech he made in Israel, the speech he made in the United States, I think it's been absolutely amazing. Um, I can tell you, being in Israel, the people of Israel are very grateful to the president. You could tell that everything he's been saying is from the heart. It's not just on a teleprompter. It's coming very deep from inside Joe Biden. People of Israel appreciate it. I appreciate it. Uh, God bless the president. And you're in Israel now, as you mentioned. Uh, how are the people of Israel feeling and processing all of this? And Well, it's been very difficult. I was in the South. I went to uh, different communities that were completely destroyed, women raped children shot in the face, the most horrendous, the most unbelievable things imaginable committed by so-called human beings against other people, uh, a massacre of men, women, and children. Uh, so the people of Israel, obviously uh, shocked, uh, but I got to tell you, uh, united, determined uh, to make sure that uh, Hamas disappears from the face of the earth, that they are removed from Gaza, so they can never perpetrate these kind of uh, crimes. And just keep in mind, 
that missiles are falling on the civilian population in Israel. I don't think America or France or England or any country in the world, Russia, China, would, would permit, would live with what the people of Israel live with. I mean, right here in Jerusalem, I had to run to a safe house, a safe spot in the house uh, to protect myself from explosions. So enough is enough. And I, I guarantee you there will not be this organization after Israel is done. Uh, and that must be so terrifying and horrific. I, I can't even imagine. But, you know, the whole world is watching this and, of course, reporting on it. We see a lot going on, obviously, in U.S. media. What do you think and what do the Israeli people think about the way that it's being reported on in U.S. media? Well, look, most of the media has been extremely understanding. Anyone in the media who has truly been witness to what has happened here in this country, in the South, uh, almost two weeks ago, 13 days ago, anyone who's aware of the facts, the actual facts, understands that there's only one way to deal with this, and that is to eradicate uh, evil personified. What's unfortunate is when the bombing of the hospital took place in Gaza, what I find incredible <laughs> is the respected media outlets like the New York Times and CNN and others, the BBC, that, you know, they all accepted what this terrorist uh, uh, organization told them of 500 people dead in the hospital. Hamas doesn't lie. They always tell the truth. Of course, if they say 500, if they blame Israel, yeah. it's got to be true. So that is worth noting for our viewers that we really do need to keep a critical eye on the information that we're taking in about this, as, you know, just to really watch out and really ask yourself each time. And whether, then you, you have know, members you of the United States Congress like Tlaib who right. said, Israel just bombed a hospital killing 500 Palestinians, just like that. Really? Well, American intelligence, forget about Israeli intelligence, the American government is telling the world it was the bad guys. It was Islamic Jihad. But we have members of Congress who are still perpetrating the lie, and they need to be investigated by the Ethics Committee. And Hakim Jeffries, the minority leader of the House, needs to take action against them. You have mentioned you wanted an ethics inquiry into these kinds of tweets. Absolutely. What kind, yeah, what kind of outcome do you hope that that will achieve? Well, look, uh, they need to look at all of this and uh, you can, you know, when we talk about a blood libel, we're talking about incitement to violence. When you incite to violence, and that results in many anti-Semitic incidents and people getting beaten up, which is exactly what's happening, Taleb and this Hamas caucus in the, they think the good guys are the terrorists. So there needs to be an investigation, in particular about the bombing of the hospital. But even as you and I are speaking, she has still not taken down the posting that she did blaming Israel when it's pretty clear now that Israel was not responsible. Dove Hickend, thank you so much. Always great to speak with you. Have, be well. Have a great weekend. The White House deleted a post on social media after receiving sharp criticism of its contents. It was a picture of President Biden interacting with special forces troops in Israel without obscuring their identities. 
The White House account deleted the photo soon after sharing. However, the picture had already received several thousand likes. Critics say the photo could endanger troops by showing their identities. The White House responded, saying they regret the error and any issues it may have caused. Coming up, an ex-Florida state lawmaker is sentenced to four months in federal prison. He pleaded guilty to COVID relief fraud. A federal judge rules a California law banning so-called assault weapons violates the Second Amendment. More on that in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Welcome back. Next, we have the testimony of a Hamas attack survivor. The October 7th terror attack left at least 1,300 Israelis dead. 260 of those were killed were at a music festival in southern Israel. Nick Jaharev was at the festival the morning of the attack. We speak with him. Nick Jaharev, thank you for joining us. Please start by sharing your personal experience of the October 7th Hamas attack. Hi, Chris. Yeah, thank you for having me here. Um, yeah, we were in the music music festival um, around six thirty. I we, you know, I looked one of the uh, craziest sunrises I've seen. Um, having a blast with my friends, I look up in the sky, and I see something that looks like fireworks, um, and then once I realized that it's not I turned to my friend I tell him listen I think we're getting bombed as soon as I said that music cuts off everybody's running for to all directions um, luckily for me I, I asked my friends not to leave right away because um, while, while, while you're getting shot at by rockets the the safest place to be if you don't have um, a bunker or some shelter is to be close to um, not be close to the cars if you're outside. So I I told my friends so I told my friends let's let's hang out a little bit you know let people leave because there's a lot of people in panic they're leaving right away and the first one left were the ones who encountered um, Hamas terrorists on the roads and uh, met their end over there. So. We um, we waited there for around 30 minutes. That's when I started hearing gunshots. That's when I realized something is is wrong here. But but you know, with the whole situation, you you think in your head, okay, probably um, around like you know 10 maybe um, terrorists that came in, and you know, this is probably like IDF fighting them at the moment. Nick, um, how is how is this? traumatic experience affecting you now after all that happened uh, it's been a it's been a weird uh, roller coaster of a ride of uh, two weeks where you know the first first week I was um, just talking about this, the all the process of the whole situation that happened um, and then you know I, I I drove up north to to supply um, tactical wear for um, for soldiers, I got a tattoo. I, I did a lot of things for, for the, to keep me occupied, so seeing friends, all of that. And then 
this Sunday, I just I just collapsed for like three days. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't want to see nobody. I, I canceled like two interviews and it was just uh, rough. But yeah, to yesterday, I think I went through like the stages of grief and yesterday was the first time I, I accepted what, what, what happened. I accepted that I have friends at the moment that I do not, that I won't see them ever again. And Nick, from somebody who's lived through this, what's your message to the world, to the Israeli people about the situation in Israel? Yeah, I have I have a couple of things to say. Um, this will be a little bit longer. Um, so, yeah, bear with me. We have a cancer in this society. It's in Israel. It's prevalent. It's really prevalent in Israel, but it's prevalent in the whole world. And that cancer is called um, the radical Islam. I want, I'm not talking about every, all the Muslims and all the Islam. We cannot let this kind of cancer, you know, exist. All right, Nick Jaharev, thank you for sharing your um, incredible testimony here. Thank you. An ex-Florida state representative was sentenced yesterday on charges connected to COVID relief fraud. Joseph Harding pleaded guilty in March to charges of wire fraud, money laundering, and making false statements. He will serve four months in federal prison. Harding claimed he was operating a small business, which in fact had been closed. The former state lawmaker lied on his loan application and was able to rake in $150,000 in COVID relief money. Harding will begin serving his sentence in January. United Auto Workers went on strike at the Alabama ZF plant last month, ended the nearly month-long walkout yesterday. The ZF plant supplies parts for Mercedes-Benz. The union said the 190 workers strike ended after a tentative agreement was ratified. About 34,000 UAW members remain on strike at the Detroit Three Automakers. That's Ford, General Motors, and Chrysler parent Stellantis. The union expanded its strike on October 11th when it walked out at the Ford's Kentucky truck plant, the company's largest plant worldwide. Ford said late on Wednesday that it was temporarily laying off another 150 workers because of the strike. More than 2,700 employees have been furloughed since the strike began. GM has laid off more than 2,300 workers. A federal judge on Thursday ruled a California law banning so-called assault weapons is unconstitutional. The judge argued that the 1989 prohibition against semi-automatic weapons goes against the Supreme Court's ruling on gun rights. Last year, the high court struck down New York State's limits on carrying concealed handguns outside the home. It ruled that firearms restrictions must be consistent with this nation's historical tradition of firearm regulation to be constitutional. The San Diego judge ruled that depriving law-abiding people of semi-automatic firearms like the AR-15 violates the Constitution's Second Amendment. He issued an injunction blocking the law, but it put on hold for 10 days so the state could appeal. California's attorney general said that he would do so. He called the judge's decision dangerous and misguided. A homeowner in Washington state opened fire this morning on three men who tried to break into his house, claiming they were police. Uh, the Auburn, Washington Police Department posted security video on X, formerly known as Twitter, 
The footage shows three masked men approach the front door before attempting to break it down. Several seconds later, gunfire erupts from inside the home, sending the suspects fleeing. The suspects are still at large. If you're a gun owner and you store your firearm in a biometric safe, listen up. Some biometric gun safes from the brands Fortress, Cabela's, Gettysburg, and Legend Range and Field are being recalled. It's due to an injury hazard and risk of death. A programming feature on the biometric safes can allow the safes to open without authorized access. A 12-year-old boy allegedly died from a firearm he was able to obtain from one of the safes. And there have been dozens of other reports of the safes being accessed by unpaired fingerprints. 61,000 of these portable gun safes with biometric locks were sold nationwide from 2019 through this month. If you think you may have one, contact Fortress Safes for instructions on disabling the biometric feature and to get a free replacement. The trial for an Indiana man charged with killing two teenage girls is expected to be delayed. The defendant's attorneys announced their intention to withdraw the representation this week. Richard Allen was arrested on October 2022. He was charged with two counts of murder and the 2017 slayings of two teenage girls. 13-year-old Abigail Williams and 14-year-old Liberty German. A relative dropped them off on February 13, 2017 at a hiking trail near their hometown in Indiana. Their bodies were found the next day in a rugged, heavily wooded area near the trail. The killings have haunted Delphi, Indiana. It's a city of about 3,000 where Allen worked at, the dr at a drugstore. Richard Allen has pleaded not guilty to the charges. Coming up, Russia's capital city is doubling its funding for security next year. Find out how they're planning to use the money as the war in Europe continues. And judicial overhaul in Ukraine. It's a response to concerns over corruption and a desire to join the EU. We'll have the details soon when we return. Welcome back. Anti-Semitic sentiment appears to be increasing on U.S. college campuses. Earlier today, we spoke with Rabbi Yaakov Menken, Managing Director for the Coalition for Jewish Values, for his perspective on that. Rabbi Yaakov Menken, thank you so much for joining us. To begin with, I'd like to look at the rise in anti-Semitic events and protests happening on college campuses across the U.S. since Hamas attacked Israel. What do you think is really driving this trend? What's behind it? Well, thank you for having me back. And I, th I think it is clear as day that what is driving it is hatred of Jews, anti-Semitism. It's clearly back because there's really no excusing it. Uh, the actions of Hamas were so barbaric, so evil, uh, they are pretending that rape is justified in certain circumstances. Think about that for a moment. These are Americans who claim to value women's rights and basic decency, and they're protesting, saying somehow it's the Israelis' fault that Jewish women were raped at random, that people at random were gunned down, that babies were beheaded. If you're trying to find some justification, some rationale behind that, it's obvious that you are motivated by an ugly bias against the victims, and there's no second way about it. It is very horrific 
to consider that. And what do you think about distinguishing between pro-Palestinian sentiment and anti-Semitism? Or well, a person who's actually pro-Palestinian would be protesting very loudly right now for Hamas to release the hostages and disarm. Because it is obvious that all of the horrors that are being visited upon Gaza right now are wholly and completely due to the fact that there are 200 hostages, 200 war crimes a second, continuous fire of missiles at Israeli civilian population centers, all of which is being done by Hamas and its allies. So I don't hear these so-called pro-Palestinian voices actually calling for Hamas to disarm, for Hamas to step down, and for there to be peace in the region. They just want more Jews dead. So if you want to tell me there's a Palestinian and anti-Semitic, I want you to find it, because I don't see anything there. And alongside these overt protests on college campuses, there's also some observers say that there is also a more subtle form of um, anti-Semitism in the form of restricting pro Israel voices within academic circles. What do you say to the effect on freedom of speech and also of safety with on college campuses and in academics? There's a freedom of speech in this country. There is no freedom of hate. Hate speech against another group, demonization of another group, does get you banned. It does not get you platformed. Certainly, there's no obligation for uh, a, a university to keep anti-Israel professors on staff. And, by the way, I mean, look at how other minority groups are treated. Uh, because Amy Wax, who is Jewish, by the way, at the University of Pennsylvania, dared to point out that as a result of affirmative action, she does not see black students in the top 50 percent of her class. She's just reporting a statistic. And she was called a racist, and they're trying to boot her off. Whereas, if you're an actual Nazi, if you're duplicating rhetoric from the Nazi era against Jews, that they're absolutely fine with. Well, that, that's called a double standard. That's called tolerating hate speech on campus as long as the victims are Jews. And so how do you think this can be balanced on campus? Freedom of speech. Um, Harvard is defending their stance in supporting a pro-Palestine, um, you know, actions on campus, saying that they're defending free speech. What are we, what's the solution here? So, so is the University of Pennsylvania. There is absolutely no justification for a uh, campus environment that's supposed to be free of hate and supposed to promote tolerance to tolerate, quote unquote, these anti-Semitic activities. Uh, they've been hiding behind a mask for entirely too long. But as of October 7th, that mask is ripped off. There was this claim that Students for Justice in Palestine was some sort of human rights organization. There is no human rights organization protesting in favor of beheading babies and raping women. That doesn't happen. That's barbarism. We are not pro-barbarism in America. We are pro-values in America. And if the universities don't realize that, the federal government has to step in and say, look, we're just not going to fund a university that is promoting hate. Hate has to go. And what do you think individuals and communities could do to prevent anti-Semitism going forward? Well, the first thing is, I mean, a lot of us went to college. And a lot of us are called upon to donate to the college, say no, and explain why. 
If your car, if your college has anti-Semitic activities on campus, if your college has an active chapter of this Students for Justice in Palestine genocidal hate organization on campus, tell them, I'm not going to support an organization that doesn't create an environment that's safe for everyone. We are opposed to all forms of racism. If you won't have a KKK chapter, but you will have an SJP chapter, then you are supporting racism and bigotry. It's just choosing victims. Right. Thank you so much for your time today, Rabbi Yaakov Menken. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And now for some short headlines from Europe. French President Emmanuel Macron today spoke with the families of hostages in Israel. Macron met with the families via video call. 28 French nationals were killed in the attack by Hamas earlier this month, and seven remain missing. That's according to the most recent figures from the French Foreign Ministry. UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak met with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman yesterday. Sunak's office says the two leaders discussed the need to avoid any further escalation in the region and that they've agreed to coordinate action on that front. Sunak and the Crown Prince also agreed on what they called a pressing need for humanitarian access into Gaza. The Prime Minister also went over the steps the UK has taken to address the situation, including $12 million of further aid. The Prime Minister's office said Sunak encouraged the Crown Prince to use Saudi's leadership to the, in the region to support stability, both now and in the long term. Sunak's visit came just after leaving Israel, where he told Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu the UK wants Israel to win against Hamas. The NATO alliance is stepping up patrols in the Baltic Sea in northern Europe. This comes after recent damage to undersea infrastructure in the region. Earlier this month, a telecom cable connecting Sweden, Estonia and Finland was damaged. Officials say they haven't reached firm conclusions on who caused the damage or whether it was accidental or deliberate. NATO's increased measures now include additional surveillance and reconnaissance flights, including with maritime patrol aircraft. Meanwhile, in Ukraine, the government might ban a church with ties to Moscow. Ukraine's parliament overwhelmingly voted to advance related legislation. Some say it would effectively ban the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. The church insists that it is fully independent and supportive of Ukraine's fight against Russia. However, the church only declared its independence from Russia three months after the war started. And Ukraine says the church maintained its ties with Moscow. The legislation now requires further voting. After that, it could get finalized and advanced to the desk of President Volodymyr Zelensky. Over in Moscow, the government plans to beef up security next year. The city authorities want to double their security budget. That's after this year's overspending amid Ukrainian drone attacks and an armed advance on the capital. The city wanted to spend half a billion dollars this year. However, it spent four times that amount. It now plans to spend one billion dollars next year. The spending plan includes money for defense against drones, video surveillance, and militias to patrol the streets. A major storm has pummeled Spain's capital, Madrid. Heavy rain forced the cancellation of trains and led to disruptions on subway lines yesterday. Record rain levels were recorded in some parts of the city.
Today, the north of Spain was still under an orange alert due to strong wind gusts. That's the second highest alert. And up north in Scotland, a different storm is affecting locals. Storm Babbitt brought heavy rainfall and winds of more than 70 miles per hour. At least one person was killed by the storm. A woman was swept into a river on Thursday. Hundreds of people had to evacuate as, as the storm approached the area. Parts of Scotland experienced severe flooding today. The wind also left thousands of homes without power. Britain's national weather forecaster issued its first red warning for rain in over three years. Ukraine has just started a process to recruit thousands of judges while vetting sitting judges. The overhaul of the country's judiciary is a response to public concerns over corruption. It's also central to cementing the rule of law, a condition to join the European Union. Here's a closer look. Ukraine is desperately short of judges. Court cases have piled up across the country. Some courtrooms have been turned into storage spaces stacked high with case files. A judge in Kiev says she typically juggles dozens of administrative cases and several criminal hearings every day. The amount of material that I have to work with that fills my head each day is too much. Working with all this overload is very difficult. The war makes the situation even worse. The day-to-day -day work of courts is frequently interrupted by air raid sirens. Power outages do have a huge impact on the work of the court. The basic equipment, computers, cameras do not work. All this makes it impossible to conduct court sessions. We cannot even issue copies of court orders. Ukraine is kick-starting a long-delayed nationwide hiring spree to fill more than 2,000 judge vacancies. The ambitious effort undertaken during the country's war with Russia is key to clearing the backlog. The war adds an additional burden, as around 100,000 alleged Russian crimes are already being investigated. Just think about the numbers of new cases that will be sent to courts. Even if all the vacancies are filled, all the hiring is done, the workload will still be enormous. The judge hiring spree will involve up to 7,000 interviews. Members of the High Qualification Commission of Judges, one of the two bodies tasked with hiring new judges, described the process as a super-marathon. We have to make sure the hiring process is transparent. We have to guarantee that hiring is conducted in an honest way. For this, we need time, but it will not drag for years. A hundred percent sure it will not. Selecting judges is only part of the challenge. Some 2,000 sitting judges will also require integrity checks. Those who will keep their posts, whose competence we will confirm, will shape the new era for the judicial power in Ukraine. The overhaul of the judiciary coincides with a broader bid to crack down on corruption. A July survey found that nearly 90% of Ukrainians believed corruption was the most serious problem facing their country, apart from the war. Coming up, a healing experience for those with PTSD. People can learn to become more centered and calm by working with horses on a farm in Normandy. We'll return with that and more after the break.
Thank you for staying with us. In Normandy, France, a farmer employs his horses to help people recover from post-traumatic stress disorder. He says therapeutic horseback riding has shown great results in reducing symptoms and is more effective than medication. NTD's France correspondent David Vives sent us this report. Yoram Cohen is a former soldier of the Israeli army. He tells us scenes he witnessed during military operations haunt him until today. They are impossible to talk about, and it's a mental burden weighing on him all the time. PTSD is a, a very severe and bad situation. I don't think that I can get out of it today. And it's going to be with me to the rest of my life. Post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, is a mental health condition caused by very stressful, frightening or distressing events. On his Normandy farm, Rémi Bleibtre offers help to those who suffer from PTSD, with the assistance of his two horses, Nina and Pepper. The horse has special qualities that make it a wonderful therapist. In fact, it's the horse that does everything. It's the relationship with the horse. Bleibtreu practices so-called equine-assisted therapy, a therapy that involves working in collaboration with horses to promote physical and mental well-being. He studied for three years equine therapy at the École Européenne d'Equitien in eastern France. Bleibtreu says horses are able to give the patients something psychiatric medication cannot provide. Many people with PTSD commit suicide. They put up with it, put up with it, put up with it, and then, after a while, they often end their lives because the suffering is too great. And so with the horse. The enormous advantage of the horse is that it always brings them back to the present moment. Bleibtreu says riding a horse forces the patient to be present, which is very beneficial. They then tend to calm down and become more centered. So the mind gets free, and then the body is free, and then you don't feel the pain that you have all the time. So it's basically calmness, quiet, and living the moment. After a year of riding horses, Cohen witnessed improvements. The first time I really let him run, uh, it, it felt like a, a big uh, accomplishment for me because you feel the wind, you have confidence in yourself and with the horse to lead you and you're not falling down and uh, it's like you're the king of the world <laughs> and, and it brings the, the feeling of, of accomplishment which I miss. Bleibtreu says a lot of the therapeutic work comes from engaging with a horse, which he calls the real therapist here. He considers his role as that of a mediator. A day with a horse is full of little rituals, like brushing or saddling the horse, all of which helps to build a bond. Bleibtreu says it all comes down to a positive relationship with and respect for the animal. To create a positive relationship with a horse, you have to build positive interactions. So once you have a horse that's in good spirits and that's settled, you can see that they have no constraints. Nothing forces them to be next to me. It's their choice. David Vives, NTD News, Normandy.
A giant satellite antenna high in the Alps has a new purpose. Workers have installed dozens of solar panels inside. Switzerland hopes to tap into its unique geography for solar energy. So it's repurposing the obsolete antenna. The antennas are over 100 feet wide and over half a mile above sea level. This specific altitude allows them to receive an optimal level of sunlight, even in winter. Just the one that's been repurposed so far can meet the energy needs of 25 households. In August last year, the Swiss government urged consumers and businesses to conserve energy to prevent shortages of gas and electricity. Solar energy could prove to be part of the solution as its share in the Swiss energy mix is growing. Astronomers have detected a mysterious blast of radio waves that took 8 billion years to reach Earth. The fast radio burst, or FRB, is an intense millisecond-long burst of radio waves with unknown origins. This is one of the most distant and energetic radio waves ever observed. The first was discovered in 2007. Since then, hundreds of the cosmic flashes have been detected coming from distant points across the universe. The burst lasted less than a millisecond, but according to a study published in the journal Science, it released the equivalent of our sun's energetic emissions over the course of 30 years. That is a lot. Now, scientists believe that these bursts could be used to weigh the universe by measuring the matter between galaxies that remain unaccounted for. Stay tuned for more news after this break. Welcome back. President Biden gave his second Oval Office address since taking office. He made the case for deeper ties, deeper U.S. involvement in the conflict in the Middle East and Ukraine. The president said he would send an urgent funding request to Congress, which is expected to be roughly $100 billion over the next year. Biden hopes that combining all of these issues into one piece of legislation will help it win congressional approval. Although Senate Republicans have asked him not to combine them, here's a recap of Biden's address. I know these conflicts can seem far away. And it's natural to ask, why does this matter to America? So let me share with you why making sure Israel and Ukraine succeed is vital for America's national security. You know, history has taught us that when terrorists don't pay a price for their terror, when dictators don't pay a price for their aggression, they cause more chaos and death and more destruction. American leadership is what holds the world together. American alliances are what keep us, America, safe. American values are what make us a partner that other nations want to work with. To put all that at risk, if we walk away from Ukraine, if we turn our backs on Israel, it's just not worth it. That's why tomorrow I'm going to send to Congress an urgent budget request to fund America's national security needs, to support our critical partners, including Israel and Ukraine. It's a smart investment that's going to pay dividends for American security for generations. Help us keep American troops out of harm's way. Help us build a world that is safer, more peaceful, more prosperous for our children and grandchildren. 
Following President Biden's address to the nation last night, we wanted to hear how Israelis are responding. We spoke with Dove Hickend, a former New York Assemblyman and the founder of Americans Against Antisemitism, for his thoughts. Dove Hickend, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for coming on. To begin with, I'd like to look at President Biden's address last night. What did you think of the tone of his message and the content of his message? Well, I think all of Biden's comments, being in Israel, the speech he made in Israel, the speech he made in the United States, I think it's been absolutely amazing. Um, I can tell you, being in Israel, the people of Israel are very grateful to the president. You could tell that everything he's been saying is from the heart. It's not just on a teleprompter. It's coming very deep from inside Joe Biden. People of Israel appreciate it. I appreciate it. Uh, God bless the president. And you're in Israel now, as you mentioned. Uh, how are the people of Israel feeling and processing all of this? And Well, it's been very difficult. I was in the South. I went to uh, different communities that were completely destroyed, women raped, children shot in the face, the most horrendous, the most unbelievable things imaginable committed by so-called human beings against other people, uh, a massacre of men, women, and children. Uh, so the people of Israel, obviously uh, shocked, uh, but I got to tell you, uh, united, determined uh, to make sure that uh, Hamas disappears from the face of the earth, that they are removed from Gaza uh, so they can never perpetrate these kind of uh, crimes. And just keep in mind that missiles are falling on the civilian population in Israel. I don't think America or France or England or any country in the world, Russia, China, would would permit, would live with what the people of Israel live with. I mean, right here in Jerusalem, I had to run to a safe house, a safe spot in the house uh, to protect myself from explosions. So enough is enough. And I, I guarantee you there will not be this organization after Israel is done. Uh, and that must be so terrifying and horrific. I, I can't even imagine. But, you know, the whole world is watching this and, of course, reporting on it. We see a lot going on, obviously, in U.S. media. What do you think and what do the Israeli people think about the way that it's being reported on in U.S. media? Well, look, most of the media has been extremely understanding. Anyone in the media who has truly been witness to what has happened here in this country, in the South, uh, almost two weeks ago, 13 days ago, anyone who's aware of the facts, the actual facts, understands that there's only one way to deal with this, and that is to eradicate uh, evil personified. What's unfortunate is when the bombing of the hospital took place in Gaza, what I find incredible <laughs> is the respected media outlets like the New York Times and CNN and others, the BBC, the, you know, they all accepted what this terrorist uh, uh, organization told them of 500 people dead in the hospital. Hamas doesn't lie. They always tell the truth. Of course, if they say 500, if they blame Israel, yeah. it's got to be true. So that is worth noting for our viewers that we really do need to keep a critical eye on the information that we're taking in about this, as, you know, just to really watch out and really ask yourself each time. And whether, then you, you have know, members you of the United States Congress like Tlaib, who right. said 
Israel just bombed a hospital killing 500 Palestinians, just like that. Really? Well, American intelligence, forget about Israeli intelligence, the American government is telling the world it was the bad guys, it was Islamic Jihad. But we have members of Congress who are still perpetrating the lie, and they need to be investigated by the Ethics Committee. And Kim Jeffries, the minority leader of the House, needs to take action against them. You have mentioned you wanted an ethics inquiry into these kinds of tweets. Absolutely. What yeah, what kind of outcome do you hope that that will achieve? Well, look, uh, they need to look at all of this, and uh, you can, you know, when we talk about a blood libel, we're talking about incitement to violence. When you incite to violence, and that results in many anti-Semitic incidents and people getting beaten up, which is exactly what's happening, Talib and this Hamas caucus in the they think the good guys are the terrorists. So there needs to be an investigation, in particular about the bombing of the hospital. But even as you and I are speaking, she has still not taken down the posting that she did blaming Israel, when it's pretty clear now that Israel was not responsible. Dove Hickend, thank you so much. Always great to speak with you. Have, be well. Have a great weekend. Now let's hear from Colonel Darren Gobb about the significance of the president's aid request and last, last night's address. Lieutenant Colonel Darren Gobb, thank you for joining us again. President Biden last night addressed the nation from the Oval Office, attempting to unify Americans around support for Israel and Ukraine um, in their respective wars. He said making sure these nations succeed is vital for U.S. national security interests. What are the U.S. national security implications of these two wars? Chris, I think that's really probably the big question out there right now is what's the strategy? What's the plan? Those of us who have been involved in developing these kinds of things with the Department of Defense, Department of State, or various other entities are looking to see that presented to the American people clearly. What's our objective? It's really hard to tell. There's, there's like the speech last night really was more an emotional appeal than anything else, but not a whole lot of why. And I realize he's using this idea about, you know, Putin could expand the conflict if he wins in Ukraine, and Israel's an ally and always has been. Tying the two conflicts together, I don't think was a, a good comparison. So uh, I think we're left with hat in hand going, you know, what are we doing? And Colonel, let's look at this. The Iran-backed Houthi group in Yemen fired missiles and drones northward, potentially towards Israel, before they were brought down by the U.S. Navy. What do we know about these missiles and drones and the likelihood they were heading for Israel? Well, Chris, I think it's fairly obvious, given what we've seen from their trajectory, that uh, it was intended to be something to do with Israel. Uh, it's hard to say for certain at this point without talking to those who were um, launching them in the first place. However, I think one of the questions that we should be asking ourselves is, how do Houthi rebels in Yemen end up with these kinds of drones and cruise missiles? Uh, that just kind of indicates to you that uh, Iran is clearly behind these things in both funding and training and is willing to use proxy forces across the region to do their bidding while trying to pretend like their hands are clean. And what's the significance of this move by the, uh, the Houthis amid the Israel-Hamas war? You sort of touched on this, but... Yeah, I think that when we look at that, it's, one, it's 
again, Iran influenced. So they're looking at their different types of proxy armies, Hamas, Hezbollah, the Houthi rebels in Yemen, and others, and ensuring that they give inflict maximum damage or public relations damage as well with regards to Israel and Hamas, specifically uh, that specific war right now. But uh, it is also indica indicative of the expanding nature of this conflict, even though it, it, sometimes it moves forward quickly and sometimes it's a little bit slower. But as you see each day, someone else seems to get involved. And I don't know if this is going to continue from Yemen or if that was a one a one shot thing. But uh, we need to be concerned about this conflict growing either by accident or by intention. And to your point, the U.S. was the one who shot down these missiles and drones. What does it mean that the U.S. is involved in this event in a kinetic way? Well, first of all, the, this was, you know, just we assume where they're going. And, and I don't know the decision exactly that happened on on these ships, of course, but there was a possibility of them looking at this like you know, they could have been launched at the American fleet. So it's always their right of self-defense in, in action, too. So that, that is a possibility. But as you, we expand our, our footprint in the region with carrier groups and, and other assets, the chances of other nations trying to attack our resources increases in the odds of an accident of some nature also increase. So we have to be very careful to make sure that we are not the cause of expanding this conflict. Lieutenant Colonel Darren Gobb, thank you again. Heading to the Capitol where lawmakers are holding a new round of voting for House Speakership, Representative Jim Jordan seems to have lost his bid for a third time this week. That's right. 427 lawmakers are present with two Republicans missing, both supporters for Jordan. That means the threshold for a simple majority is 214. So Jordan can't lose more than six votes from his side. But again, more than 20 Republicans have voted against Jordan, including some who supported him in the first two rounds of voting. Some voted for ousted Speaker Kevin McCarthy and Representative Mike Garcia. Both of them voted for Jordan. Israeli forces tightened security and erected barriers in the streets of East Jerusalem ahead of Muslim residents' Friday prayers. Worshippers are expected to gather today at Jerusalem's Al-Aqsa Mosque, the third holiest shrine in Islam. Armed Israeli security blocked Lion's Gate entrance to the old city in Jerusalem. Some Palestinians were seen praying outside the old city on the pavements, surrounded by armed Israeli security. Some were granted access and could be seen participating in Friday prayers inside the compound. And anti-Semitism appeared to be on the rise on college campuses. A rabbi shares what's driving this trend and what actions he thinks universities should take. We have more in just a moment. Welcome back. President Biden is set to discuss the Israel-Hamas war and stress unity on support for Ukraine at noon. The president is hosting European Council President Charles Michel and European Commission Chief Ursula von der Leyen. 
trade negotiation renegotiators yesterday scrambled to avoid the resumption of U.S. import tariffs on EU steel and aluminum. Those policies take effect again in November. But von der Leyen said the Israel-Hamas war and a looming Israeli ground offensive into Gaza will likely dominate the discussions. The Biden administration suspended tariffs on EU steel and aluminum imports, but both sides must agree on new measures by the end of this month. Washington wants the EU to apply metal tariffs on imports from China. Any deal is expected to take time. Israelis have begun burying their loved ones who were killed by Hamas terrorists. According to the country's National Institute of Forensic Medicine, hundreds of bodies have yet to be identified. Families wait for news of those still missing. NTD's Andrew Thomas reports. The National Institute for Forensic Medicine says it has already identified more than 500 people. Nearly a thousand bodies have already been brought to the center. UK scientist Robert Green says forensic investigators will use every means possible to reunite the dead with their families. Investigators will actually go to you know, the houses, I suppose, of these uh, poor victims uh, and will try to recover things such as toothbrushes, um, where you can actually then get a direct sample from the toothbrush to, uh, to the individual. Israeli investigators say they're dealing with a lot of charred remains. But Green says identifying the bodies is still possible. If the, if the deceased are burned beyond recognition uh, but are not cremated, um, then you know, there's a chance. It, it all depends upon the temperature and so forth. Forensic advances like DNA make it possible to identify people. But Green says this can be a long process. You have to extract the DNA from, from the bone. You have to extract the, the DNA from the teeth. Um, and it, it just lengthens the process against the backdrop of you know, how many hundreds of, of individuals are, are waiting to be processed. Police techniques to identify the dead could help, but Green sympathizes with the scientists now facing the challenge of returning the dead to their loved ones. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Anti-Semitic sentiment appears to be increasing on U.S. college campuses. Earlier today, we spoke with Rabbi Yaakov Menken, Managing Director of the Coalition for Jewish Values, for his perspective on this. Rabbi Yaakov Menken, thank you so much for joining us. To begin with, I'd like to look at the rise in anti-Semitic events and protests happening on college campuses across the U.S. since Hamas attacked Israel. What do you think is really driving this trend? What's behind it? Well, thank you for having me back. And I, th I think it is clear as day that what is driving it is hatred of Jews, anti-Semitism. It's clearly back because there's really no excusing it. Uh, the actions of Hamas were so barbaric, so evil, uh, they are pretending that rape is justified in certain circumstances. Think about that for a moment. These are Americans who claim to value women's rights and basic decency, and they're protesting, saying somehow it's the Israelis' fault that Jewish women were raped at random, that people at random were gunned down, that babies were beheaded. If you're trying to find some justification, some rationale behind that, it's obvious that you are motivated by an ugly bias against the victims, and there's no second way about it. It is very horrific to consider that. And what do you think about distinguishing between pro-Palestinian sentiment and anti-Semitism? Or... 
Well, a person who's actually pro-Palestinian would be protesting very loudly right now for Hamas to release the hostages and disarm. Because it is obvious that all of the horrors that are being visited upon Gaza right now are wholly and completely due to the fact that there are 200 hostages, 200 war crimes a second, continuous fire of missiles at Israeli civilian population centers, all of which is being done by Hamas and its allies. So I don't hear these so-called pro-Palestinian voices actually calling for Hamas to disarm, for Hamas to step down, and for there to be peace in the region. They just want more Jews dead. So if you want to tell me there's a Palestinian and anti-Semitic, I want you to find it, because I don't see anything there. And alongside these overt protests on college campuses, there's also some observers say that there is also a more subtle form of um, anti-Semitism in the form of restricting pro Israel voices within academic circles. What do you say to the effect on freedom of speech and also of safety with on college campuses and in academics? There is a freedom of speech in this country. There is no freedom of hate. Hate speech against another group, demonization of another group, does get you banned. It does not get you platformed. Certainly, there's no obligation for uh, a, a university to keep anti-Israel professors on staff. And, by the way, I mean, look at how other minority groups are treated. Uh, because Amy Wax, who is Jewish, by the way, at the University of Pennsylvania, dared to point out that as a result of affirmative action, she does not see black students in the top 50 percent of her class. She's just reporting a statistic. And she was called a racist, and they're trying to boot her off. Whereas, if you're an actual Nazi, if you're duplicating rhetoric from the Nazi era against Jews, that they're absolutely fine with. Well, that, that's called a double standard. That's called tolerating hate speech on campus as long as the victims are Jews. And so how do you think this can be balanced on campus? Freedom of speech. Um, Harvard is defending their stance in supporting a pro-Palestine, um, you know, actions on campus, saying that they're defending free speech. What are we, what's the solution here? So, so is the University of Pennsylvania. There is absolutely no justification for a uh, campus environment that's supposed to be free of hate and supposed to promote tolerance to tolerate, quote unquote, these anti-Semitic activities. Uh, they've been hiding behind a mask for entirely too long. But as of October 7th, that mask is ripped off. There was this claim that Students for Justice in Palestine was some sort of human rights organization. There is no human rights organization protesting in favor of beheading babies and raping women. That doesn't happen. That's barbarism. We are not pro-barbarism in America. We are pro-values in America. And if the universities don't realize that, the federal government has to step in and say, look, we're just not going to fund a university that is promoting hate. Hate has to go. And what do you think individuals and communities could do to prevent anti-Semitism going forward? Well, the first thing is, I mean, a lot of us went to college. And a lot of us are called upon to donate to the college, say no, and explain why. If your, car, if your college has anti-Semitic activities on campus, if your college has an active chapter of this Students for Justice in Palestine genocidal hate organization on campus. Now, I'm not going to support an organization that doesn't create an environment that's safe for everyone. 
We are opposed to all forms of racism. If you won't have a KKK chapter, but you will have an SJP chapter, then you are supporting racism and bigotry. It's just choosing victims. Right. Thank you so much for your time today, Rabbi Yaakov Menken. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Coming up, did China escalate the global tech fight? The country announced today it will restrict exports of a key EV battery mineral. And Beijing's tight grip online grows as popular internet influencers are now forced to reveal their names and faces. We'll have the details soon when we return. Thank you for staying with us. We now head to San Francisco, where police released footage of a Chinese man who crashed his car into the Chinese consulate on October 9th. The footage shows the man holding a knife, which he wielded at police officer trying to arrest him. The man was shot by police during the confrontation. NTD's Coast Jimenez has more on the incident and the statement by authorities. The body cam footage was released during a 90-minute town hall meeting. That's an online briefing typically presented by the San Francisco Police Department within 10 days of any officer involved shooting, as part of its public transparency routine. On October 9, 2023, at approximately 3.08 p.m., the Department of Emergency Management dispatched SFPD officers from Northern Police Station to an A-Priority 518 call. The dispatcher advised that the vehicle, a blue Honda, had crashed into the Chinese consulate and the driver was armed with a gun. It was relayed by dispatch that two security guards were holding the driver and it was unknown where the gun was. One of the 911 callers told dispatch that the vehicle collision was intentional. The footage shows an officer moving towards the subject and uniformed security guards. According to a statement by police, the man was later identified as Mr. Zhang Wan Yang. The sergeant approached Mr. Yang and ordered him to get on the ground, but he did not comply. The suspect can be seen standing against a wall, covering his face. <coughs> Due to the presence of pepper spray, the officers and others in the lobby can be heard coughing. The suspect then turns around and pulls out a knife, which he wields in a downward motion at the officer. The officer then shoots Mr. Young at close range. He was later pronounced dead at a hospital. No one else was injured in the altercation. According to police, the only weapons recovered from the scene were the knife and a crossbow, which somewhat resembled a rifle. Police did not say whether Mr. Young had any connection to the consulate, adding there is no further information for public release as to the motives of the attacker. The department's internal review of police conduct in the incident is continuing, along with a separate investigation into the overall case itself. Cost MNS, NTD News. A quick update here. We've just heard confirmation that Representative Jim Jordan has officially lost the vote for House Speaker. 25 Republicans voted against him. There are no more votes today. China has unveiled plans to restrict exports of a crucial mineral used to make EV batteries. Officials announced today that export permits will be required for certain graphite products. Here with us live to discuss is NTD business host Don Ma. 
Don, I want to ask you why is China limiting exports of this crucial mineral? But first, maybe give us a little background information. Uh, sure, Chris. Um, first of all, China is the world's top producer of graphite. Um, and according to the U.S. Geological Survey, China accounts for around two-thirds of the global supply. So China also refines more than 90% uh, of the world's graphite into minerals used in uh, virtually all EV batteries. Uh, so China is an important player here. And the reason graphite is also important is because it's a key component in electric vehicle batteries. Uh, graphite is the largest EV battery component by weight. Uh, so that's about double the amount of lithium in an uh, EV battery. Um, but, you know, besides EVs, graphite is also commonly used in uh, the semiconductor, aerospace, chemical, and steel industries. Um, and top buyers of graphite uh, are uh, from China are Japan, the U.S., and a couple of others. And so why is China limiting exports of this crucial mineral? So according to the official statement, uh, it's for national security reasons. Uh, China's Commerce uh, Ministry said the move was to ensure stability of the global supply chain and industrial chain and to better safeguard national security and interests. Um, it added that it was not targeting any specific country. Uh, now, that's the official statement. Uh, but some analysts are questioning whether this is a tit-for-tat measure against the U.S. Um, because Washington said on Tuesday that it plans to halt shipments of more advanced uh, artificial intelligence chips to China. And three days later, today, Beijing officials announced uh, these, gra these graphite curbs. So the timing may be curious to some. What will the impact of these curbs be, Don? So under these uh, new restrictions, uh, which will take effect December 1st, China will require exporters to apply for permits to ship certain types of graphite. Um, the curbs are actually similar to those placed on chip-making metals, gallium and germanium, a couple months ago. And what we've seen uh, from that uh, with those restrictions is that they have effectively choked off exports of those metals and pushed up prices outside of the country. So what analysts are saying about these restrictions is that the impact um, could be the average price of graphite will rise in the future. Um, but I have to point out this, is, this control is, is not a complete ban. And some analysts are saying there has been no significant impact on any industry during the previous temporary controls. So it remains to be seen. But it does raise the question of how dependent on China the U.S. wants to be uh, in the context of this electric vehicle push. Um, it highlights the need for the West perhaps to have independent supply chains and self-sufficiency in both raw materials and downstream components. All right. Thank you, Don. Thanks, Chris. Next, uh, turning to countries in Asia. Here are top stories from today. The bodies of eight Thai nationals killed in Israel from a Hamas attack have made it back to Thailand. The remains arrived via an Israeli commercial flight. Government officials held a ceremony marking the return of the slain Thai citizens. The Israeli ambassador also attended the service. 
remains are now being transported to their respective provinces for local funeral ceremonies. According to Thailand's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, 30 Thai citizens have been killed in the conflict. 16 were injured and 17 were abducted. A team of international scientists are measuring fish samples from a port town near Japan's Fukushima nuclear plant. Japan has begun to release treated radioactive water into the sea. The scientists hope to assess the impact. They are measuring radionuclides which are most relevant. So they mentioned cesium-137 and tritium. So these are two radionuclides that are important to monitor. Their measurements are done with state-of-the-art equipment. Japan says the radioactivity levels are well below international standards, but China banned all imports of marine products from Japan. Scientists from China, South Korea and Canada watched workers process fish samples. They were joined by researchers from the International Atomic Energy Agency. The collected specimens were then sent to laboratories in different countries for independent testing. The group will release a comprehensive report, including the test results from each lab. Canada's foreign minister says the country has recalled 41 of its diplomats from India. The Indian government had said it would revoke their diplomatic immunity. The safety of Canadians and of our diplomats is always my top concern. Given the implications of India's actions on the safety of our diplomats, we have facilitated their safe departure from India. Canada alleges that India may have been involved in the death of a Sikh activist. He was killed last June in suburban Vancouver. India has dismissed the allegation of its involvement in the killing as absurd, but it is accusing Canada of harboring separatists and terrorists. For years, India had said that the Sikh leader had t links to terrorism. The Canadian citizen born in India denied the allegations. Picture this. Popular internet influencers forced to come out of the shadows and reveal their names and faces. If you had more than a million followers, but now you have to show your real name for everyone to see, would you still feel safe? Many influencers are now saying goodbye to their accounts following new internet regulation from Beijing. Personal safety and comfort now hanging in the balance. Here's what's happening. Starting this month, China's popular social media influencers will have to reveal their real names to the public. That's according to the CEO of Chinese social media giant Weibo this week. Beijing used to require online users to register with their personal IDs, but forcing them to show their real names publicly is a first. What are Chinese authorities aiming for with the new move? In the past, many people, especially the influencers, would actively report, expose, and discuss various social issues or unveil authorities' wrongdoings online. After this new rule is imposed, few are likely to engage in such activities anymore because they would essentially be making themselves potential targets for retaliation. Everyone would know their real names, where they live, and who they are. Chinese authorities want to get all influencers who have fan bases of 500,000 to a million followers on board within two months. Because of the change, some influencers have already permanently deleted their accounts, even those usually in support of Beijing's policies. Town explained that many influencers run their pro-Beijing accounts as businesses, helping to push the Chinese regime's propaganda for profit. But that'll prove difficult after their names go public. 
It would further deteriorate the online public opinion environment in mainland China and undermine freedom of expression. News of the new rule immediately sparked buzz online. The CEO of China's Twitter-like Weibo has reportedly revealed his real name on his own account. He said he was testing Beijing's new policy. He also said the policy would, in the future, apply to users with more than 500,000 followers. He suggested that influencers remove some of their followers to avoid the rule. Four people are accused of selling dinosaur bones to China. A federal grand jury in Salt Lake City has indicted them for stealing $1 million of artifacts. The haul amounts to 150,000 pounds of items, including dinosaur bones illegally removed from southeastern Utah. Prosecutors allege that the defendants committed several felonies. By law, any fossils or organism traces preserved in or on the Earth's crust are protected items. Beginning in March 2018, the defendants reportedly purchased, transported, and exported dinosaur bones from federal land. This allegedly also caused more than $3 million in damage. When we come back, the Sydney Opera House celebrates its 50th anniversary today. One architect's childhood nostalgia leads him to become a part-time tour guide at the iconic structure. We'll return with that more after the break. And a woman starts a company to bring cheer during a difficult time. She shares how she's able to look on the bright side and how her movement has grown so quickly. More shortly here on NTD News Today. Welcome back. Justin, another co-defendant in Georgia's election interference case is pleading guilty. Pro-Trump lawyer Kenneth Cheeseborough. He agreed to a plea deal involving paying $5,000 and 100 hours of community service. He was also ordered to write a letter of apology to the citizens of Georgia. Like Sidney Powell, he also agreed to testify in both the Georgia case and Trump's federal election case. The Sydney Opera House is celebrating its 50th anniversary today. One architect's childhood nostalgia led him to become a part-time tour guide at the iconic structure. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on the shiny white sails that inspired him. Peter Sekulis remembers being five years old when his parents took him to the Sydney Opera House for the first time. The moment inspired his lifelong love of architecture. But that's probably my earliest memory of seeing something which was very unusual. Because a lot of the buildings and even houses I was living in were all squares and rectangles. And then there was this very sh funny shape of a um, building which was coming out of uh, the harbour. 233 designs for the Opera House were submitted by architects from around the world. Jorn Utzen from Denmark won. Sekulis says he tried to instill Utzen's philosophy into his own architectural career. Utzen said his laboratory was the beach forests of Denmark, the oceans of the world, and the clouds. I mean, it's just a beautiful philosophy. And I've tried to instill that within me in terms of when I started my architectural career, how do I look at the environment? After 14 years of construction, the Sydney Opera House was officially opened by Queen Elizabeth II on October 20th, 1973. 
The iconic structure celebrated its 50th birthday with fireworks and a laser show illuminating its sails. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. You know, I think the Queen actually visited the Opera House in 1973. Oh, really? Okay, that would have been a big deal for a lot of Australians. Right. Yeah. Um, I actually thought I had heard that the the concept for the building was from um, you know the architect looking at a a bunch of um, shells of oranges that he had cut up and eaten, but turns out it was it's related to sales. It kind of looks like that a little bit here. Yeah, it does. Um, I've always been like I grew up looking at this thing um, over the years with different news items, and it just when I think of Australia, I think of the Sydney Opera House. Certainly. Um, next up, a young woman's passion project that's sending smiles around the world. The Happy Trails project started as a way to help people stay connected during the pandemic lockdowns, and the project is still growing. I caught up with the collaboration's founder, who says she wanted to bring some brightness to that dark and difficult time that the world was in. To me, it was so crazy that something like this was able to impact the entire world at such a great scale at the you know, fast pace that it was. And I couldn't help but think that there had to be something that could be done to spread a positive message at the same exponential rate um, and really you know, just make people smile. Like It was such a simple gesture that people were really kind of just giving up because we lost out on social interaction. At the start of the pandemic, Sophia Barkov was a senior at Indiana University. She and her classmates were sent home with no plans for when to return. And it was, it was at that point in time that I think people really started to realize that we took for granted so many of the little things in life. And it was really just like giving your friend a phone call or calling to check in that really made the difference at that point. And so she set out to see how much of a positive impact one person could have. At that point in time when we didn't really have that much to look forward to or that many social interactions to really go and actually you know be with people it really was brightening people's day and making an impact on their life so how does it work this is the product um, it's a smiley face bracelet and it's a gift as well because you can't just order one you've got to pass it on if you wanted to, you know, send smiles to three or more people that you knew, you would go online and start your trail and you would receive a smile in the mail and then these three plus others would also receive a smile in the mail um, with a card basically explaining the project and saying, you know, we hope this actually brightens your day and if you want to pass it on, here's a code that you can do so. The code tracking happy trails across the globe. To me, the coolest part is that all of the trails are tracked. So let's say you send it to three people and then they send it on to three people and then they send it on to three people. They're all included on your trail. So you can go on our website and go to track your trail and put in the code and it will show up on a map um, with like all of the people that you've impacted. In Sophia's case, that's nearly 30,000 people in more than 28 different countries. And that's just the smiles she's sending out. Happy Trails also gives 10% of all proceeds to Feed the Children, an anti-hunger nonprofit. And how have you felt that impact? Are there any stories that you've, you've come across along the way? Yeah, there's so many stories, honestly. To me, one of the coolest things ever is I live in New York City and I will literally be walking on the street and I'll spot the Happy Trails on random people's wrists. And to me, that was just like so cool. I'm like, I think I made it. Like, this is, this is what I wanted to see. 
spreading positivity and proving her hypothesis. That one person really can have such a large impact on so many others and it, it doesn't have to be the hardest thing to do. It could be through a simple gesture like a smile. Starting small and thinking big. When I first started, I sent to 100 of my friends or my family's friends. I got like my best friends and my family to help me come up with this list of 100 people. And that was how I started the Happy Trails Project. Like, what's been the impact on you? It's really just been crazy for me to watch this grow. Um, you know, I came up with this idea, like I said, in COVID times when everyone was kind of staying at home and in this like depressive state of life. And it's really been cool to look back at that time and say like, this is something good that actually came out of it. And we're still doing good in this world. And it all started from something that was really negative. And I think it just goes to show that you can always kind of turn something negative into a positive to some extent. And it's important to look at, you know, the bright side of things and figure out how to always look at like the glass half full. So who will you give a smile to today? Wow, what an inspiring young woman. I know obviously the pandemic's over now, but is she still doing this? Oh yeah, she sure is. Actually, she's got big plans for it. What are those plans? Well, she told me that she's hoping to spread smiles across the entire world. So it's a big, big vision. Oh my gosh, and the world can certainly use a lot more smiles right now. Oh, it sure can. If you'd like to send a smile, you can go head on over to happytrailsproject.com to start a happy trail of your own. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, feeling a connection to others and the human bond, you know, it's enough to help people get through these hard times. That's right. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, please feel free to email us at news.today at ntd.com.